This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Kara Ong Whaley, Associate Director at JMU Civic and co-host. And co-hosting along with me today is Abe Goldberg, Executive Director at JMU Civic. Hi, Abe. Hey, Kara. How are you? Good. Also in this studio with me is Angelina Clapp. She is our Democracy Program Fellow and a recent graduate of JMU. Hi, Angelina. Hi, Kara. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us this morning. We are delighted to have a special guest with us today, Julia Azari, who is an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. Her research interests include the American presidency, political parties, and political rhetoric. She is author of Delivering the People's Message, The Changing Politics of the Presidential Mandate. And she also hosts a sister podcast in the democracy group called Politics in Question. Um, and finally, she's also a contributor to 538. Thanks so much for joining us, Julia. Thank you for having me. Um, so we've had a change in presidential administration, and we thought it would be a good time to chat with you. Um, so we're looking forward to hearing your um, to hearing your thoughts. Um, you've written a book about the politics of presidential mandates, um, arguing that changes began with Richard Nixon and culminated and culminated with more recent presidents who have sought to justify their policy choices in terms of the will of the electorate and the clear choices presented in their campaigns. Uh, your research in your research you found that modern presidents also tie election results to specific policies rather than the broader ideas about national party or party values as in previous eras. I wonder if you can start by telling us telling us and our listeners about what you mean by presidential mandates. Yeah, so this is a really tricky kind of concept. And I was inspired to write this dissertation, which I started uh, many, many years ago, um, and eventually became the basis for a somewhat different book, because I found this I found the analysis really unsatisfying. And here's a little bit of why. So political scientists tend to be really skeptical of the idea of mandates and tend to think that, you know, there just aren't election mandates. You can't really pull out one, like, key meaning out of an election. People make decisions for so many different reasons. And that's kind of part of why they're they're not really realistic. There's also a kind of critique that they kind of over-empower the president. And I think that that's also relevant to the way that I approached my work. But what frustrated me is that I was writing this, I was sort of in the stage where you have to think about your dissertation topic in, in 2005. And it was, so George W. Bush had just been reelected. And it was clear that even though political scientists are really skeptical that mandates are real, that the concept of an election having a meaning, and that especially a presidential election, which has become such a kind of focal point of our political system, that people are not going to be able to move away from the notion that that is going to have a specific meaning. And so I wanted to kind of reconcile, you know, the the imperative in social science to study something systematic with the the reality of these kinds of concepts in that float around in the political discourse that, you know, they may or may not be connected to 
the the reality on the ground of, of voter psychology or voter behavior, but nevertheless, they're repeated often. And so they're, they're real in a sense. And I thought we can get a better handle on how, in this case, how presidents and those around them kind of interpret the election and what that means. That's that in, on its own is kind of an empirical fact, even if it's even if it's heavily constructed by by those political actors. So I wonder how you see President Joe Biden in comparison to other modern presidents, and how does the logic of Amer- of electoral mandates present in his communications? Yeah, so I have been waiting and waiting for someone to ask me this question. Um, the, the, the speech that Biden gave on the night of November 7th, when the, the race was called by the networks, did invoke a mandate and it invoked a very kind of complicated and extensive mandate where essentially, you know, our, you said our, you know, our mandate is to move forward with a variety of fairly deep systemic agendas, addressing systemic racism, addressing climate change, addressing the COVID situation. And I thought that would be more typical of his rhetoric in office. And I had predicted, and I had made this prediction in a 538 piece I wrote that came out a little bit before the election, that whoever won would probably rely on this mandate logic a lot. And that's because of the the finding I have in my book, which is essentially that presidents are drawn to this mandate rhetoric and to the idea of the election as a justifier or legitimator when there are questions about their legitimacy and the kind of legitimacy of, of the office, when public faith in government is low, um, and when there's a lot of par- partisan polarization. And this is, you know, predicted Obama's mandate claiming pretty well, and it predicted Trump's mandate claiming, which he did a lot of pretty well. But the intervening moment between Biden's election and his inauguration, I think, really changed the changed the tone. And I think that it, in part, kind of, he doesn't need to say it, because even though Biden won, you know, decisively, but not overwhelmingly, there was so much focus on the notion of him winning the election on the on the idea of the peaceful transfer of power and respect for the process and every bit of this process that is normally ceremonial in American politics was now, you know, household language about the certification of electoral college votes. All of that became such a front page story in through November, December, and then, of course, culminating culminating in January with the events on January 6th, that I think Biden doesn't, you know, doesn't really need to say it. I don't think he really needs to say we're doing what we were elected to do. What I suspect will probably happen later, and I should, you know, probably stop making predictions, but I won't. Um, what I suspect will happen later is that as parts of his agenda get more and more pushback, and maybe in the you know, if he's his first major confrontation, either with Republicans or or maybe with the left, um, that will be his moment to say, "Look, this is the agenda we ran on, and this is we're doing what we were elected to do." And it will be when he's in that kind of defensive posture. But the context has so far kept him out of that. 
John Woolley and Gerhard Peters at the Presidency Project at the University of California at Santa Barbara analyzed President Biden's first weeks in office and found that he has set records for the numbers of presidential actions that have rarely been reached by presidents before the seventh or eighth week in office. With 51 ordering documents, many continue multiple directives. Among the policy areas most addressed are the climate crisis, COVID, and immigration. 19 of the 51 documents are rejections of previous policy. How do presidential actions relate to the logic of electoral mandates? Yeah, this is a great question, too. So the way that I describe this in my book is that presidents talk about mandates. They talk about the election as a justification when they're moving into an area that's that's contested or where their where their authority is less clear. And this is documented in, in research that came before my book. There's a, a an extensive article of the about the way that Andrew Jackson used the idea of the election mandate of 1832 to expand his authority and take kind of unprecedented scope of, of, you know, executive action, um, in, um, in destroying the, the national bank of the United States. And what I, I essentially find is that this logic plays out over and over again in more recent American politics. And so we, we might expect that when pressed, which I think will eventually happen, as I said, and someone asked Biden, look, what is what is your deal with all of these executive actions that we might see some logic there of, well, you know, I was elected and he's he said, you know, I'm undoing bad policy was the language that he used. And I, I could see him later on saying, well, I was elected to to reverse these policies of the Trump administration. And that also is really linked up with with this, you know, kind of with a sense of what came before, which is that Trump did have many of his the um, I'm going to use the word accomplishments in a totally morally neutral way, right? The things that his his administration did were mostly executive actions. Um, Congress was not particularly productive during that time, even when they even under unified government. And so, so Trump did a lot through executive action and Biden has been undoing that. And so I think that's, that's kind of part of what has shaped what has happened. And I think the logic of that, the mandate logic of that, that we might potentially see is Biden saying, you know, the, the, the meaning of my election was to overturn Trump actions on issues like the, like the Muslim travel ban on issues like the transgender ban in the military. And on the one hand, we would be very hard pressed, I think, to make a, a really rigorous empirical argument that people went to the ballot box in November of 2020 and 84 million Americans cast their vote for Biden thinking specifically about the transgender ban in the military. You know, for some people that is probably true, but not very many. Immigration, more salient, more kind of issue that gets more more play, but also maybe not at the forefront of most people's minds. And yet at the same time, I think that you can make a very logical claim that part of the purpose of Biden's majority victory in 2020 was that that slim but there but present majority of Americans preferring a more kind of center left set of cultural values in in national politics than the Trump administration reflected. And that is, that is also reflected in national polls. And so I think there, 
this is sort of what gets at the tension between how political scientists think about mandates. Like, did people really think about that? Is that really empirically true? And does it speak to kind of a larger conceptual truth about the electorate overall? I think those, those two things can simultaneously be the case. Can you also speak to the causes and consequences of the rise in presidential action to address policy issues? Yeah, I mean, this is one that, this is an issue that presidential scholars and congressional scholars have really um, spent a lot of time thinking about. And I think the issue is, there's there's two main reasons, and I'm going to speak about this very broadly. Um, one is congressional inaction. And that's mostly a fairly recent phenomenon, where we have all these kind of high profile issues and they'll become nationally high profile and there'll be a conversation and it just can't get over the threshold, the the filibuster threshold in the Senate or you have divided government. And in that, in that case, it can't get up even through the house. Right. And so that tends to be, I think the, um, the main cause of, of recent, the recent uptick in presidential action to address kind of core policy issues is, is Congress can't pass legislation. And when there's divided government, the two parties frequently can't come to an agreement about um, even about kind of routine issues, much less make real progress on, on big questions. Um, The second reason though, because the uptick in presidential action predates this most recent era. um, The other I mean, the other reason is just the way that government has developed over time. So speaking kind of roughly since since the New Deal, since the 1930s, you have this expansion in federal government and federal agencies. And so more policy is made through, you know, through executive action directing those agencies and how they how they carry out existing law. So it's just kind of it's kind of an artifact of the growth of the administrative state. Doesn't that end up giving an incredible amount of power to unelected political actors when we govern through agencies? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, It certainly does. But the alternative, let's see, how to to get to this. This, I'm not really someone who's has a really clearly developed vision of the of the normative side of this but essentially i think what we're getting at is a political situation in which i mean i've been thinking a lot over like the last day about congress and what congress is and isn't doing is that the election process the the process that links officials with their constituents has become really removed from policy specifics. And that does create, that does create a problem, right? And this has kind of been like the, the discourse over the last week or so since, um, since the weather events in Texas and the power outages last week. And there was a lot of kind of criticism of, well, this is what happens when your whole political discourse is this sort of outrage about the culture war that isn't really policy related. And that has tended to be directed at Republicans. I think it's worth investigating ways in which Democrats may have also engaged in that. But that's sort of my read on it is that, yeah, it does give a lot of power to unelected officials. But the, the area to start looking at is, well, why, 
why do mem- why do members of Congress not see it as being in their interest to address major national issues? And like I so a couple weeks ago, I was talking to some um, people who've worked in Washington for a long time with a group of students, and one of the things that we one of the things they said is, well, nothing was getting done in 2020 because you can't address big issues in an election year. And everybody else in this conversation agreed with me that this is, or agreed with each other that this is just sort of obvious in the way of things. But I don't think that that's that's true. Like I know it's not true. <laughs> if you look at history, you know, Congress and the president used to get stuff done in election years, and that might even be desirable, right? Like leading into the election year, oh, we passed a big bill doing a thing, and now any sort of thing you could potentially do is is toxic and i think that's linked to to our political environment to our media environment um but i think the problem is is really is really deep and the decoupling of getting things done and passing legislation and the kind of responsiveness of the electoral process is a really really big problem wow thank you that's daunting to think about it really um, is <laughs> it really is <laughs> Yeah. Um, Julia, U.S. News ran a column recently titled Joe Biden's inaugural mandate, just normal, describing Joe Biden's, quote, less glamorous, but arguably more pressing mandate, a return to a normal time before Americans lived in fear of contracting COVID-19, before the leader of the free world attacked and threatened on social media, and before basic facts, such as who got more votes in the presidential election, were considered up for legitimate debate. From your expert view and your understanding of mandates, how do popular and media conceptions of mandates differ from those of presidents and their teams? Yeah, this is a great question. And I I wish I had had explored this more systematically in my um, in my book, actually, but I did look quite a bit at, at media conceptions of different of different elections, and then you know what was going on in terms of the inside the presidential administration, and I did find differences. Obviously, these influence each other, um, right? Media pick up on what um, what officials say, and I think Biden did run, particularly in the primary, on the sort of return to normalcy, even even prior to to COVID nineteen. Um, and also, you know, their public officials are, are listening to what media are, are saying. Um, one of the explanations out there about what shapes media narratives is their, their need to explain things that they may not have been able to explain prior to the election. Um, and, you know, is the, is the election a surprise? And that, I think, is not really relevant in 2020. So we don't have a clear kind of unified theory about what, what media are going after. Obviously, I think, you know, media have a variety of different outlets have a variety of different, different kinds of incentives, but mostly they want to kind of tell a story that their readers can follow. um, And to, you know, kind of put, put an election into some kind of larger context that links up to other things that they're, that they're covering and other narratives that they're telling about what's going on in American politics. Um, These are a little bit different than the incentives that an administration has, right? And in particular, an administration may under some 
conditions have have an incentive to sort of differentiate themselves and shake things up, right? So they're they're not necessarily looking to be fit into an existing media narrative. They're looking to carve out their their own kinds of justifications um, and. You know, ultimately, presidents are thinking about their policy agendas and their and their legacies. So they're kind of trying to be, I think, distinct. Um, and also thinking about this gets to some of the other broader questions about the, the legislative agenda. They're also they should be at least thinking about what are the political incentives of the other players. So they're thinking about mandates much more strategically. And they might want to think about, well, how can they how can they shake up the political incentives of the other players? So if you're Joe Biden, you're the Biden administration, you're thinking, how can I define the 2020 election in a way that that makes someone like Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema rethink their political incentives? Or alternately, you might be looking left and thinking, well, how can I redefine the election in a way that will get a, a popular figure on the left, like an AOC or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren? to come out in favor of a, a pol- an administration policy that is tacking to the center because of this, the pressing need to get these more centrist votes. And so you're thinking about how you can, how you can change things up to kind of alter the incentives of the people that you need to get on your team to get things done. And media are not really thinking about that. They're thinking about generally about ways to kind of tell a cohesive story. That's really interesting. And um, you brought up political incentives and also sort of the need to define um, an agenda. Um, and that sort of leads to our next question, actually. With Jose Villalobos and Justin Vaughn, you found that appeals to electoral mandates and bipartisanship don't have an impact on presidential legislative ex- legislative success. Um, what advice would you give to presidents in order to be successful in achieving their legislative agendas? And I might also kind of tack on to that, you know, what are their political incentives? Um, it, what are the political incentives as part of that to be successful? Yeah, I think that's that's essentially it, right? That That legislative success depends on kind of aligning what you're trying to do with the political incentives of the people that you need to persuade. And also, I mean, the other tack with that, and this has taken up, I think, a lot of attention in the the literature on the presidency, and especially um, on like presidential rhetoric and presidential um, media engagement, presidential trips, is kind of like, how can presidents change that that political environment um, and make, you know, Joe Manchin's constituents or the constituents of various members of the house or whoever, you know, get on board in this sort of more attenuated way. And frankly, it's not super obvious to me that presidents have a lot of, of wiggle room in that area right now. And I think that's one of the things that we're seeing that's, that's starting to really frustrate people is that Biden, this goes back to executive action, right? You can make, you can make decisions from the executive branch and make policy out of the White House. That's a power that you have that you don't really have a lot of power over members of Congress. The Constitution is designed that way. The Constitution is designed for Congress and the president to have distinct political constituencies and independent perspectives. But then it comes down to the question of, you know, who in Congress wants what? 
and what kinds of legislative achievements do they you know, do they do they feel like they need to have and there i think we're seeing really you know really wide variety of of answers among like within the democratic caucus which is very ideologically broad and then very very different with their republican counterparts so you know how much how much power does biden have to change that in a deeply polarized country and in a country where people's kind of perspectives are entrenched and it's not clear that compromise is is valued that's really hard i think um, I, I don't have, I know this, the, this show is a lot about kind of giving advice and making democracy better, but I just don't know what the, what the president can do there. Um, I think it's really instructive here actually to once again, to compare with the Trump administration. So Trump clearly had incredible sway over Republicans and the electorate and congressional Republicans were very responsive to that. And we saw that in a bunch of different contexts, but one thing it didn't ever really translate into was legislative action. It really did not. Tra- it translated into confirming Trump's nominees. It translated into his, um, you know, sticking with him in the impeachment, the two impeachment contexts. But it never translated into actually getting over the collective action dilemmas it, to get legislation passed. The only major legislation, really, that that came out of the Republican agenda during the unified period was the tax cut, which was already a Republican priority. You didn't, you know, they didn't build a wall or pass major conservative immigration legislation or any of Trump's other major legislative priorities. And so, you know, Trump couldn't do that. I think it's even harder for Biden. Only 10 of 211 Republicans in the House voted to impeach Donald Trump, and only seven GOP senators voted to convict him over the insurrection at the Capitol. How do you view the future of the Republican Party, especially in light of its relationship to Donald Trump? Yeah, so this, again, is a really great question. And I, I see kind of a couple things happening. One is that the Republican Party, as any any party in a two-party system is going to, really, anytime you have more than like two individuals in a room, there it had disagreements, right? It had disagreements going into the 2016 nomination cycle. One of those core disagreements was on was on immigration, but there were other ways to to slice up those factions. And now the core disagreement in the Republican Party is where people stand in relation to Trump. That really seems like the main disagreement. And it so it pits some legislators who are very conservative, like Liz Cheney and Ben Sass, against other conservative legislators who have who are more loyal to to the former president. You throw in a former president whose kind of purchase and leverage is unclear at this point. Who's you know, whose role in the political system is, I, I wrote a little bit about this at 538 that, um, that a couple weeks ago, that the post-president party relationship is always kind of murky and <laughs> Trump is no exception, obviously. Um, it, you know, it's not clear to me how he's going to remain a central figure for the party. It just seems unlikely. And in the absence of Trump, he sort of leaves that fissure around Trumpism. And that's a very difficult fissure to get over. It, it involves some really core um, kind of values about how democracy works. 
And so my prediction, which I have not said before, but I sort of predict that the 2024 will be similar to 2016 in that they won't be able to easily coordinate on a nominee. Only this time around, it may actually lead to some more serious splintering. I mean, people thought that would happen in 16. It didn't. And I might be wrong, but I think that these, these particular disagreements are very difficult to, to reconcile. Um, and it's not obvious this is something else I brought up in this 538 piece. It's really not obvious what the political value of Trumpism and the Trump brand is. On the one hand, you know, Trump won the presidency and he's clearly very popular in the GOP base. On the other hand, 2018 and 2020 were not great elections for Republicans. And so I think there's going to be a lot of ambivalence about not just about the the issues and the core values, but also about the strategy. And that really seems to me like a recipe for a more significant splintering. It's interesting because um, Julia, over the past several weeks, several high profile um, Republican congressional leaders have made high profile and very visible trips to Florida to spend time with Donald Trump. Would that indicate his continued influence within the party? I think that it would. But I don't know how long, you know, how long that lasts or what he's, what he continues to do. And I guess it's reasonable to think he's going to have continued influence just in the same way that Obama has continues to have influence in the Democratic Party, that George W. Bush has continued to have um, influence in the, um, in, in the Republican Party in some ways, even though he left office. I think it's notable to say much less popular than, than Trump, Um they always continue to have influence. They know a lot of people. They have a, a big platform, even even Trump under these strange circumstances. But I don't know that that means it's going to kind of be his party. It's hard for anyone to lead an American political party, frankly. Um, and once you're once you're out of office and kind of you know getting on in your your years, I think it's really challenging to do that. And and there's so many people in the Republican Party who are ambitious, I think, and who want to, they don't want to support Trump's next presidential bid. They want to be the next Trump, whether they say that out loud. Gosh, this has just been a fascinating analysis. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. Um, we, we, we do ask a, a final question of all of our guests. we be really excited to hear your response. What would you do to strengthen our democracy? Yeah, so... Two things. I'm going to offer one thing that's that's really general and one thing that's more concrete. And the more general one is kind of what I said before, which is to bring elections back into line with with getting things done and to to be a country where elections not just mean something in a sort of conceptual sense, but that where where Republicans and Democrats alike and people in all factions of the parties see concrete policy achievements as part of their part of their political incentive structure. And it will never fully replace, you know, rhetoric and taking a position and, you know, doing doing constituency service and all those kinds of things, right? These are politics is always gonna be a little bit of a game. But if I think if we could bring some of policy achievement back in, you know, just to some degree and have have a situation in which policy and politics are are at least somehow related. That would really help responsiveness. I think it would really help 
people have more faith in the democratic process. And now I see that as really, as not only do people not trust institutions, but as I look at them, I don't know why they would. Um, the second thing is more concrete, and this is sort of my, my like hobby horse as people talk about the Senate, and I think we'll have a lot of, it, a lot of attention on the Senate in the next couple of years. And one thing that we could do, I think, with the Senate that would improve American democracy is you could, and this would obviously require major constitutional overhaul, but replace or add to, you know, each state gets represented as a state. Add the top 50 cities as well. I realized that would that would change over time, and you could measure that in terms of the, the city itself or the metropolitan statistical area or, or whatever. You know, there are different ways you could do it. But I do think that if we if we take the logic at the founding that people deserve some represent some kind of collective representation about where they live and the the kind of area that they live in, the kind of person that they are, that's not ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. But you know, what is ridiculous is to say that people in the Dakotas deserve that because they're rural people, but people in the cities, in American cities, many of which have, you know, been, been so beleaguered and have become kind of the, the places where folks who have been most, most harmed by centuries of systemic racism, or many of those, you know, folks live, to say they also don't deserve some representation because of where they live, I think is you know, is anti-democratic. And so one way we could preserve some of the founding notion and some of the, the representation that, that rural folks have is to share it with with urban people as well and to really make the Senate into a sort of more pluralistic body of that, that kind of representation. Julia Azari, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. 